Hello and welcome to Bad Gays. This is the uh, last episode of our series. Uh, my name's Hugh Lemmy. I'm a writer and author. And I'm Ben Miller, a writer, researcher, and member of the board of the Schwulis Museum in Berlin. And just to reassure our US listeners, um, for whom series means like the whole show and not the season, this is not the last episode we're ever going to do, I hope. But it is the last episode of our season. Sorry, the last episode of the season uh, for our American series listeners. or whatever. So last week we were discussing uh, John Wadowich, the, um, the the bank robber whose life and story became the subject of the film A Dog Day Afternoon. Uh, who are we talking about this week, Ben? Before I uh, talk about who we're talking about this week, I would like to um, issue a content warning that uh, in a bit of black humor, I labeled in my notes as content warning for everything. Um but I think it's important that people know that we're going to be talking about a serial killer on this episode, um, that we're going to be talking about what he did, um, which involved particularly gruesome things. It involved sexual violence. Um, it involves uh, racialized sexual violence. Um, if these are not things that you want to hear a whole podcast episode that will basically about be about nothing but that, I would really recommend turning the episode off now. Um, but to begin, if you grew up in the U.S. in the 1990s, as I did, then Jeffrey Dahmer loomed large in your cultural imagination, the monster gay predator who kidnapped, lured, raped, murdered, and devoured young men and boys. In the Stranger Danger workshops they ran in our kindergarten and first grade, Dahmer wasn't mentioned by name, but afterwards, at recess on the playground, the name was tossed casually, bet casually between groups of playing boys, like two teams throwing darts. I do actually want to stop and talk about these Stranger Danger workshops for a minute. I grew up in a leafy liberal suburb of Boston, Massachusetts, a place where strangers were truly not dangerous, at least if you were white and looked like you belonged. Of course, for people on the wrong side of the class and color line, such places are quite dangerous. The real Stranger Danger in such a place is being understood as a stranger, not any hypothetical danger to a white child on a playground. But I digress. The Stranger Danger workshops were run by groups of older volunteers, I have no idea who they were, whether they came from some kind of church group or whether they were employed by the city. All of them seemed terribly old, but in the way that anyone over 25 seems old to someone in the first grade. Alarmingly, these old people ran the workshops by themselves pretending to be playing children so that others of them could then pretend to approach them and we could learn strategies for saying no and attracting the attention of a trusted adult. Oh, that's weird. The image of a 65-year-old woman miming being a kindergarten girl on a balance beam, complete with batting eyelashes, baby voice, and baby doll dress, will sadly never leave my head. Oh my, my god, yeah. We learned that if a creepy old man praised your balance beam and you were supposed to say, Go away! You are not a trusted adult! At the top of our little lungs. We learned that danger lurked everywhere, and especially on the sides of suburban playgrounds. This logic that danger is lurking everywhere, and especially on suburban playgrounds, is of course the logic of the perverse and reactionary genre of true crime. To quote the writer Gabriella Gage, who grew up in a working class community near Boston marked by violence and whose experiences there shaped her distaste for the genre, quote, true crime feels like a closed casket, a superficial barrier. Murder isn't meant to be watchable. Tragedy seekers are pulled toward cases under the violent grammar of true crime, glass of wine, bed by nine. End quote. The actual effect of these actual murders on actual people are treated by adult Disney fans, adult Harry Potter readers, and other examples of Bobo Arrested Development as salacious little bits of gossip, fun details, drama. 
on another podcast I listened to, I heard an ad for a game that sends you details of actual crimes to solve, as though you are the detective. Among other things, this genre is often, if not always, astonishingly deaf to the increasingly impossible to ignore calls for police abolition and a total rethink of criminal justice that have emerged from black and people of color-led political coalitions in the United States and across Europe. In fact, I understand its increasing popularity as in some way a white response to that political movement. White people cuddling our blanket of true crime, our reassuring narratives about who the police are for and who they are meant to protect around us. Sure, we'll go to the rally about people murdered by cops, but before bed we'll listen to our fairy tales about how the cops are here to protect us. None of this phenomenon is separable from questions of gender, sexuality, and race, and it's no surprise that it is the image of the vulnerable white woman or the missing white child who we as a culture imagine as the de facto perfect crime victim, the person always at threat who needs defending by strong men with big guns. Jeffrey Dahmer remains one of the exemplary constructions of the supervillain serial killer, the perfect subject of a true crime story, the monster with 100% name recognition among U.S. Americans who we U.S. Americans, to quote the Rush cultural critic uh, Richard Tithecott, quote, have a not very clandestine affair going on with these monster hunks, these white male superhero fiends, these Hannibal Lecters. We build them up as others so we can fear and despise them while we long for them and admire them. They are projections not only of nightmare, but of some dark wish fulfillment we want to play with but not acknowledge. We keep our relations with the serial killer undercover, where all the fun is, end quote. In today's episode, which is, after all, a podcast about a serial killer and one in which I can't, as much as I might like to think I can, separate my own motives from those of the true crime podcasters whose wine-filled shows I like to think that we're much better than, we'll try to avoid this problem as best we can by confronting it head-on. So today's episode will be about Jeffrey Dahmer, but as man and also as metaphor, about the phenomenon of the serial killer monster, about the construction of this gay cannibal monster under the shadow of the AIDS epidemic, about the ways in which homophobia, racism, and various kinds of true crime myths that Dahmer helped reify ironically impeded his arrest and enabled his crimes, and about the twisted, slap-happy identification with Dahmer pursued by gay men, and why that identification is, at the very least, understandable. To again quote Tithcott, um, who was talking about a moment in Dahmer's trial when uh, Dahmer, we were discussing Dahmer's collection of various body parts severed from his criminals, uh, from his victims, uh, I apologize. Uh, the uh, the witness wrote, quote, uh, hunters display animal heads without being considered psychotic or paraphiliac. It was also a pretty realistic way to keep trophies. Tithcott then writes, quote, when we find ourselves conflating images of serial killers with roles created by, among others, Ernest Hemingway in order to find the former legally sane, perhaps it is time to find ways of foregrounding what it is we consider normal. Instead of interrogating Dahmer's past and childhood in our search for the key to his motivation, perhaps we need to examine the relation of dreams of violence, of racial or sexual purity, of closure, of death, to our dominant culture and its dreams. Mm. Yeah. So I want to, having said that and agreed with it, I now am going to tell the story of Dahmer's childhood, but throughout with a critical eye towards the ways that we would rather construct the roots of his crimes in a kind of vulgar Freudianism of, of the discussion of parenting. Uh, than a look at any kind of broader social systems. So Dahmer's parents, Lionel Herbert Dahmer and Annette Joyce Flint, were married in August of 1959, and their marriage was uh, troubled and bickery from the beginning. Both came from uh, good Midwestern German stock. Lionel was studying as a chemist, and Dahmer's biographers all seem to attest he spent too much time at work and neglected Joyce. She quickly became pregnant, and after a difficult gestation, gave birth to Jeffrey Lionel Dahmer on May 21, 1960, in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. 
So here we're going to have our first eruption of vulgar Freudianism. Uh, and I want to briefly quote from Brian Masters, who's a gay biographer of serial killers and whose book on Dahmer called The Shrine of Jeffrey Dahmer has been a multiple edition uh, bestseller. Quote, Joyce did not take well to breastfeeding. Keeping to the demanding schedule made her irritable and nervous, so she gave it up. Of course, it is true that thousands of mothers in the Western world declined to feed their offspring at the breast, and one not ought to give the event greater weight than it deserves, but it may be instructive to imagine the effect upon the child of such a sudden withdrawal of sustaining contact. Some children will take it in their stride and be comforted by the bottle. Others may feel the abrupt change in their tactile world as a kind of rejection or distance, which they are obviously too young to interpret. Thus do the rejection and distance become incorporated, absorbed into their view of their own place in the world, and gradually presumed natural and deserved, or just right. The mother, too, may not reflect that by denying her breast to the infant, she is placing self before benevolence, end quote. Oh, fuck off. I mean, I mean, what a caveat. Yes, of course, <laughs> tens and thousands, millions of people weren't breastfed, but Jeffrey Dahmer was, and perhaps it's worth, worth thinking that it's his mother's fault for not bre- breastfeeding him. It's, uh, it, it's, not, it's, it's more vulgar Melanie Klein than, than vulgar Freud there, but extremely <laughs> vulgar no matter. It's real. It's like nightmare shit from hell. Um, so... Uh, At the age of four, Jeffrey suffered a serious uh, testicular hernia and had to be operated on. And uh, in standard 1960s style, the doctors didn't explain what was going to happen. And so when he woke up, he thought he didn't have private parts anymore, apparently. As a young child, he enjoyed playing with animals and neighborhood kids, although he did have somewhat of a sadistic streak, once goading a friend into sticking his hands into a hornet's nest. Joyce was, like many other white suburban middle-class housewives, unhappy and began to take pills, at one point when Jeffrey was sick, she overdosed on Sicanil uh, and then switched to the uh, more advanced barbiturate Equinil. Um, as a solution to her problem, she discovered born-again Christianity and had the whole family rebaptized at the Church of Christ. When his father graduated with his doctorate, the family moved to Doylestown, Ohio, where Jeffrey's younger brother David was born in December 1966. They adopted a dog named Frisky and eventually moved a few months later to Bath Township. One biographer claims the move was because they always wanted to live in the rural landscape of Bath Township, and the other claims that it was due to Joyce's neurotic reaction to their first house in Ohio. So again, we're on this search for vulgar Freudian motives for serial killing, but we can't even agree between two best-selling biographies about what those were supposed to be. Yeah, right. Um, Once again, Jeffrey um, began school in uh, Bath Township and seemed to enjoy it, although, like many other little gay boys, he had an easier time making friends with teachers and grown-ups than other children. At the age of eight, he was caught playing a choking game with some friends and paddled by his teacher. Uh, more vulgar Freudianism, again from Brian Masters, who is, a, who is a real master at it. I don't want to pick on one particular author, but Masters does give such juicy quote that it's hard to not keep doing it. But here we go. Here's a quote from Brian Masters' book, The Shrine of Jeffrey Dahmer. Quote, it is already clear that the young Dahmer was showing signs that could be interpreted as schizoid. An understanding of trust develops slowly in the child from the first day of life and enables him to realize his place in the world and his responsibilities toward it. Decline into a totally trust-free, isolated schizoid state is rare, but its seeds are easily sown and its crop can be devastating. <laughs> How many of us would survive such a personality examination of everything that we do yeah. in elementary school or middle school? Um, 
I, I want to quote again from uh, from Tithcott here, quote, if, a, if the crimes of a serial killer cannot be neatly and completely figured as originating in the criminal's individual identity, his family can function by mopping up the remaining meaning, leaving the rest of us untainted. It's interesting. Um, my mother worked, used to work in child protection, actually, and I remember her talking about one of her cases, which involved um, a, a child multiple murderer. Um, and she... She, she um she pointed out that there's like an obsession with an obsession social obsession with young serial killers or young young murderers precisely because there's a desire to search for this uh deviant nub that explains it which is i think it's the same sort of urge here which is you know like 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 the the idea of a child serial killer is uh, uh somehow much harder for us to understand, to, for us to comprehend. And therefore we look for this idea of like this pure evil or this nub that makes them somehow more shocking than adult killers. But it seems here like the same serial killers, this, this urge to look back and say like this, there must be something wrong with them from an early age, like that their right. essence is, is it, evil. Exactly. Or that there's some, or that it's the family's fault. And again, I think this is really fascinating. Um, this, this way of thinking about serial killers is I think part of a broader family values freak out. And I think in the U.S. context, a lot of people on the left, a lot of liberals thought that that had receded after the gay marriage victories. But it's really coming back with a vengeance now in the form of things like the violent anti-trans laws in Texas, which are going to pr- uh, prosecute trans-affirming parents for child abuse, uh, for giving yeah. their children health care. And I actually think that the true crime phenomenon and the way that we think and talk about serial killers, and this is something that uh, Tithcott's book actually kind of predicts, um, have helped that family values freakout persist and be kept alive in people's kind of unconscious and subconscious. Um, Tithcott quotes, and I just want to go back here and say, even if we're talking about the relationship between family and becoming a serial killer, even if we want to talk about that, the situation that we have here is that his mother is a sort of, um, for understandable reasons, given what life was like for married women in the American 1960s, a sort of typical bored white suburban housewife who becomes increasingly um, unhappy and dissatisfied and God, wouldn't you be, you know? Um, but there's actually a, there's an FBI hearing. Um, sorry, there's a a congressional hearing in the mid 1990s where the head of the FBI is being interviewed by a congressman named English, who was chair of the chair of the appropriate committee. And they're talking about the sort of uh, phenomenon of the serial killer and Dahmer's being discussed. And the chair of the committee asked, uh, if, uh, the FBI believed that the increasing number of working women would lead to more serial killers because of uh, latchkey kids who didn't have anyone to look after them after school. And the head of the FBI said, yes. Yeah. I mean, it's this primitive attachment theory that sort of um, has a lot of sort of folk wisdom, I guess, for a lot of people. Right. And the, the, uh, the incoherence of the claims of family and upbringing story to explain serial killers are, I think uh, really well expressed through the conflict between these two biographies I've been talking about, the Donald Davis book, uh, the Jeffrey Dahmer story and the, the master's book that, that has all the vulgar Freudianism quotes, by the way, the uh, Davis book, Lord help us uh, was optioned by Netflix and will later this year be a Ryan Murphy miniseries starring Evan Peters. So oh my God. gird your loins. Um, but anyway, just to give you again, the two books unable to disagree, uh, rather unable to agree about their sort of childhood motives. So Masters says, 
Uh, at Eastview Junior High School, Jeff made a number of friends on a superficial level, played cornet in the school band for a while, and habitually sat at the lunch table with Bill Henry, Greg Rogerson, and David Borsvold. Uh, Davis writes, quote, In the same way that Akron cannot keep its young men, Jeffrey Dahmer had a hard time keeping friends. By the time he hit junior high school, the overpowering loneliness that was to haunt his existence was already showing like an ominous banner, identifying the skinny, toe-headed kid with the big glasses as being different. So which one was it? Yeah. And also, uh, like you said, like if you go back and analyze any of our childhoods, like, oh, he was a gay kid at school who like had this difficulty like making and keeping friends. It's like, I, you know, yeah. I'm, not, I'm, not fr- I'm not friends of anyone I was at school with. Of course not. It was the nature of being at school, right? Right, of course. So around this time, Dahmer began uh, doing something uh, that's sort of classic uh, serial killer behavior, if you believe all of the serial killer books, which is to begin doing experiments on animals, bleaching chicken bones, uh, preserving insects in formaldehyde, and using acid to strip the meats off the bone of dead animals. He may have killed and disemboweled a dog while in high school, and, and clearly this is disturbing behavior, and more so when we realize that Dahmer would bring some of these same methods into his adult killing patterns. He was able to access the chemicals from his father, who was a chemist, and who commended at least some of the experiments that he knew about, the ones that were on already dead animals or on the carcasses of the meat served at family dinners. He thought it was sort of evidence of scientific curiosity. Meanwhile, Joyce's health was beginning to collapse as her pill consumption uh, was growing, and Jeff apparently blamed himself for his mother's addiction and began to withdraw. He uh, had begun at this point to experiment sexually with a couple of boys in the woods, sort of normal teenage stuff. Um, And at 14, he started to drink heavily and was known in high school as a class clown. He would do an act where he would stumble and flap around and trip over people and and sort of act silly in order to get a laugh from friends. Um, He was known as someone who would take any dare. His grades suffered. He only had a 2.0 average, but uh, he did spend uh, continually a huge amount of time killing, dissecting, and preserving small animals and moths. And he would actually bury them in a cemetery in the woods behind his house with little crosses. Um, one difference between this and some of the sort of standard serial killer stuff is that uh, apparently he was not, at this point, um, particularly interested in the killing part. What he liked was the dissection and the sort of dealing with something that was already dead. And it was at this time that he began to realize that he was gay and started, um, he got some got some gay porn magazines and became fixated on those sort of hairless, well-formed male torsos and began to imagine domination and submission fantasies um, of the hairless male body. Again, um, of how many little gay boys is this true and how many become serial killers versus the way that this is then written about in all of these, in all of these, um, in all these media accounts that, that come later. Yeah. He graduated high school with the class of 1978. And it was at that time that his parents filed for divorce and uh, his father, Lionel, moved out. At this time, there was a very handsome jogger who would always run shirtless by the house, and Jeff began to fantasize about knocking him out with a baseball bat and taking him into the woods and kind of having his way with him. Um, And he lay in wait one day with the baseball bat, but that day, luckily for the jogger, he went down a different street, and so it didn't happen. But three weeks after his high school graduation, Dahmer picked up the handsome hitchhiker, Stephen Mark Hicks, who was 19, and brought him home to the empty house. His mother had abandoned the house with his younger brother and claimed to be afraid of his father. Hicks was hitchhiking to a rock concert a few days later, and Dahmer invited him over to the empty house for a few beers and a joint. 
And when it became clear that Stephen was straight um, and Dahmer was afraid that Stephen would leave, he went downstairs, got an eight pound barbell, came up from Stephen behind and slammed him in the head with it until he became unconscious. He then strangled Stephen until he was no longer breathing and after doing so, stripped him naked and masturbated over the dead corpse. He stashed the corpse in the crawl space, which is a sort of half basement um, of a foundation. And the next day, having bought a large hunting knife, he began to slice open the body and carve it into various pieces, using his training from animal dissection, storing the body parts in garbage bags and burning clothing and other identifying documents. Now, until now, we haven't really gotten into the police in this episode and their monstrous combination of incompetence and authoritarian power. It is my proposition, and not only mine, that the myths of true crime and of the serial killer study genre enable both that incompetence and that authoritarianism. And it's at this point in the story that we're going to get to the first and not the last time that Dahmer could have just been stopped in his tracks. So driving a few days later with the bags of Stephen's body to a nearby ravine at three in the morning, he was pulled over by a cop who called for backup. Dahmer was asked to get out of the car because he'd been driving erratically and did a quick roadside sobriety test. The authors noticed the car was full of plastic bags and smelled rotting flesh, but accepted Dahmer's excuse that it was his trash, that he was taking it to the dump, and that he was taking it so late in order to get his mind off his parents fighting. They didn't open the bags, they didn't investigate further, and he was free to go. Jesus, okay. So that fall, he enrolled at Ohio State University, but he drank too much to ever go to class and failed all his courses. He dropped out and joined the army and was deployed as a combat medic, combat medic to West Germany. Once again, his drinking got in the way, and in 1981, he was discharged from the army, where he traveled to Miami Beach, worked at a deli and lived at a motel until he was evicted, and then he sort of lived as a, as a drunk on the beach uh, for a while, drinking everything he earned. He went back to live with his father for a while, who tried to get him to stop drinking. Uh, that didn't work. He then went to live with his grandmother, who did get him to stop drinking, and under her influence, he got a job as a phlebotomist at a local blood plasma center. Uh, but he then lost that job after being arrested for indecent exposure at the Wisconsin State Fair in 1982. He ended up obtaining work at a chocolate factory in Milwaukee, uh, and he would work night shifts and then go to bathhouses and gay bars, and at the time, he still lived with his grandmother. He seemed to hate it when his sexual partners moved or otherwise reacted to sex in any way, and so he began to drug them before having sex with them. He was able to get sleeping pills by telling doctors he needed them because he worked the night shift at the chocolate factory. The bathhouses ended up banning him because of this behavior, and he pursued uh, the behavior in hotels and elsewhere. Again, the sleazy bathhouse stories are a crucial part of the Dahmer myth, especially given that the whole story exploded upon his arrest in 1991 at the height of the HIV-AIDS pandemic. That sleazy gay murderer who had been to those sleazy bathhouses where faggots fucked each other to death all made a lot of cultural sense. Hmm. Quote, President Joe Biden, quote, Back 15, 20 years ago, when we talked about this, it was all about, well, gay bathhouses. It was all about round-o'clock sex. Come on, man. But those bathhouses were among the only places that actually took action. They kicked Dahmer out for this horrifying behavior. But he continued picking guys up at clubs and taking them back to hotel rooms to do the same thing. So uh, was he, like, out, out as a gay man, as it were? As it were, I mean, I don't think he ever had a functional gay life where he would go. I mean, it's not like he was, it's not like he never had a partner, you know, he never, but, but he would go to gay bars and, and people seem to know. He he like conceived, did he, uh, did he conceive his own identity as being as, as a gay man? I believe so. Okay. I certainly as a homosexual, I don't know about gay man. Yeah. Yeah. 
On November 21st, 1987, Dahmer went to the 219 Club on South 2nd Street, one of several gay bars in the neighborhood, and picked up a guy named Stephen Twomey, who was 25, and invited him back to his room at the Ambassador. Um, we do have to say that one of the reasons Dahmer was able to attract victims was that he was actually an extremely good-looking guy. Um, Dahmer would later claim that he had no memories of what happened before he woke up the next morning lying on top of Steve Twomey's dead body. Just complete shock, uh, he was quoted as saying by Brian Masters. Shock, horror, panic. I just couldn't believe it happened again after all those years when I'd done nothing like this. Apparently, they had had consensual sex before Stephen packed up, passed out from the drug cocktail, but Dahmer had no memory of the killing. In a panic, he went out and bought a large suitcase and brought the body back to his grandmother's house in a taxi. That week was Thanksgiving, and everyone celebrated with the body rotting below them. On the weekend, he sliced the body into small pieces and smashed the bones with a sledgehammer in the basement and put the bags in the trash. He boiled the head in bleach and retained the skull for a time before eventually throwing it away. After this murder, Dahmer began to conceive of himself as in collaboration with some external evil force. This is the subject of a lot of psychologizing by the serial killer biographers who devote a lot of time to demonic influences and the idea of momentary possession. This may indeed be something that Dahmer felt, but constructing it as the myth of his being seems to collaborate with a social urge to make him into a monster from the Black Lagoon, whose crimes didn't and couldn't have anything to do with the broader society around him. The next person Dahmer murdered was a young, underage native sex worker named James Edward Doxtater, who Dahmer employed as a photo model before strangling him. Once again, he chopped up the body and kept the skull for a few months. In March of 1988, he murdered Richard Guerrero, another sex worker he had employed, and again he had sex with the corpse, dismembered it, and kept the skull for a few months. And we'll see how this pattern of selecting the kinds of victims, young gay sex workers and mostly men of color, who society does not value, kept him able to keep doing it and stopped him from being arrested. Um, there's a writer named Dale Peck, uh, who is most famous as the writer of kind of scathing critical takedowns, including a fabulous essay about Mayor Pete that actually got unpublished from New Republic magazine in an act of vicious editorial homophobia. Um, but in addition to uh, those reviews, he has written a really fantastic book called Visions and Revisions, which is about his gay life during the AIDS pandemic. Peck was sent to Milwaukee to cover the murders, um, and in Visions and Revisions, he has this this great quote about being in uh, one of the sort of mostly black um, sort of underclass gay bars where Dahmer would find his victims. Quote, I glimpsed for the first time the emotional and political reality behind Jeffrey Dahmer's actions, the intersection, intersecting vectors of racism and homophobia that practically cried out for someone to take advantage of the situation. It was too easy to imagine this boy and boys like him, the handsome ones, the ones who needed to be told they were handsome, the ones most of all who had been cast out by friends and family and were willing to accept $50. They weren't hustling. They were posing for pictures as a substitute for love. This boy wouldn't tell anyone where he was going because there was no one to tell. And for a few dollars more, he would meekly hold out his thin wrist to be handcuffed for the quote unquote bondage photo. He would drink a drug drink. He would never wake up and he would never be missed. Yeah. A very different weighting to that sort of, sort of uh, prose than the, the serial killer biographies you're writing before, you know, very, very different. Um, it's a, it's a real. I mean, it's not mostly a book about Jeffrey Dahmer, but it's a really, it's a really wonderful book and a really kind yeah. of um, a really sexy book and a really angry book. Uh, and 
Dale Peck is too interesting of a writer to be someone where you can you can read something and agree with everything he says in it, uh, but it's definitely a book that should be read more than it is. Mm-hmm. So in the fall of 1988, his grandmother evicted him because of his drinking, uh, and two days after the eviction, Dahmer was arrested for drugging and molesting a 13-year-old boy whose name was not made public. Um, but we'll hear more about uh, this victim actually later in the story and in one of the most... Um, rage-inducing and horrifying parts of the whole thing. Dahmer served one year in jail with work release and then five years probation, uh, but his murder campaign would only continue. After his release, he moved into the Oxford apartments in an area of Milwaukee characterized by highly racialized poverty. Not a lot of people know this, but Milwaukee is one of the most, if not the most, segregated cities in the United States. This meant that when his neighbors and others in the neighborhood repeatedly tried to alert police and authorities, including the landlord, that there were chainsaw noises, foul odors, etc. coming out of his apartment, those neighbors were not the kind of people the cops believe, but instead the kind they brutalize and arrest or threaten to arrest. Dahmer claimed to his landlord that the odors came from once a breaking refrigerator and once from a broken fish tank. Before moving into Oxford Apartments, since 1978, Dahmer had murdered a total of five people. But in 1990 alone, his first year living there, he killed four men, Raymond Smith, Edward Smith, Ernest Miller, and David Thomas, all of whom were young men in their 20s, all of whom were lured to the apartment in the promise of low-grade sex worker posing for pictures, and all of whom were drugged, raped, and dismembered. Dahmer began to keep parts of the body in his fridge and freezer to preserve skeletons and paint them or coat them in enamel. In 1991, in the early spring, Dahmer murdered two people, Curtis Strader, who was 17, and Errol Lindsay, who was 19. Lindsay was a young black straight man who Dahmer drugged, drilled a hole in his skull, and poured hydrochloric acid into his brain in an attempt to make him permanently mute and submissive. And he tried, oh, to, no. he tried to preserve Lindsay's skin after his death, but threw it away when it became too brittle. In... The uh, In May of 1991, Dahmer had his second encounter with police uh, that will rightfully make your head explode. So remember, at this time, Jeffrey Dahmer was on probation for sexual abuse of a minor. Three days after murdering and dismembering Tony Hughes, a deaf man who Dahmer murdered along his usual pattern, he uh, approached a 14-year-old Laotian-American boy named Conorak Synthosimphon. Horrifyingly, Conorak was, although Dahmer didn't know it, actually the younger brother of the boy that Dahmer had been convicted of abusing. Oh my god. Conorak accompanied Dahmer to his apartment and Dahmer paid him to pose for some Polaroids before drugging him, drilling a hole in his skull, and pouring in the hydrochloric acid. Dahmer then left the apartment and had some drinks at the bar. When he headed back to the apartment, he found Conorak sitting, bleeding on the curb, talking to two young black women, Sandra Smith and her cousin, Nicole Childress. The two women had found him stammering incoherently and walking, wandering the street, bleeding. Dahmer approached them and told them the boy was his boyfriend. The girls didn't believe him and screamed for help when the police arrived. The police assumed that Conorak and Dahmer were a couple and engaged in some kind of gay drug sex dispute that was beneath their consideration and delivered Conorak and Dahmer back to his apartment, which at that time contained the corpses and the pieces of corpses of several people and stank of rotting flesh. The two black women knew Conorak, although not well from the neighborhood, and when they tried to give the officers their names and testimony, they were told to butt out, shut the fuck up, and threatened with arrest. Jesus Christ. They went to the home of Sandra's mother, Glenda Cleveland, who called 911. The operator sounded concerned and patched her through to the cops, who condescendingly told her that they needed no more information, 
uh, and that Conorak was an adult. And Cleveland told the officer, no, we know these kids. He's not an adult. And they replied, it's all taken care of, ma'am, and hung up on her. She called the FBI and got no response. Um, and actually, one of the two officers who had been called to the scene uh, sent this message to the dispatcher. The, in, quote, the intoxicated na- Asian naked male, laughter heard in background, was returned to sober boyfriend and were 10-8, 10-4. It'll be a minute. My partner's going to get deloused at the station. Laughter. Fucking hell. It's, I mean, it's, it's, there's just some similarities there to um, the Stephen Port case that we discussed in the Crested Dick episode of um of the the just sort of police homophobia just thinking that like this sort of tiff i guess between two two men is sort of something you know they just disregard these very obvious signs of wrongdoing oh absolutely as soon as conorak and Dahmer were escorted into the apartment by his by the police he strangled conorak to death abused his corpse and dismembered the body Dahmer would murder four more men that June and July, Matt Turner, Jeremiah Weinberger, Oliver Lacey, and Joseph Braidhoft, all down-and-out men who were lured to the apartment on the premise of being paid for sexy photos or sex. In total, all of Dahmer's 17 victims, of all of Dahmer's 17 victims, 11 were black and several others were non-black people of color. When Dahmer was finally arrested, it was because Tracy Edwards, a 32-year-old black man who Dahmer was trying to murder, managed to escape despite Dahmer's attempts to handcuff him and find police officers. And by the way, the police officers only believed him because they were at the handcuffs were actually on his wrists. Uh, they then accompanied him back to Dahmer's apartment, who once again tried to convince the officers this was just another druggy gay domestic res- dispute. This time, the officers saw Dahmer's Polaroids of decomposing body parts and arrested him. When the apartment was searched, they found uh, blood, seven skulls, two human hearts, arm muscles, a torso, a bag of human organs, two hands, two severed penises, and a 57-gallon drum of acid, which contained three dismembered torsos. Dahmer immediately confessed to all 17 of the murders and waived his right to have a lawyer present. And he indicated that he'd been trying to make an altar with the skulls of his victims on each side and having sort of one human skeleton on each side. And he said he thought of it as a place of meditation. He pleaded guilty, but insane with the trial intending to determine not his guilt, but his sanity. And at this time, a coalition of the families of Dahmer's 11 black victims issued a condemnation of the quote, blatant examples of racism in the case. And they claimed to have been disrespected and by police and courts while Dahmer was treated with deference and even got away with the murders for so long because his victims were poor and black. Many of us in Milwaukee are beginning to ask ourselves, the statement read, if this is a blatant case of racism and insensitivity. While Dahmer's lawyer, Gerald Boyle, insisted he wasn't racist, quote, Dahmer's obsession was to body form, he said in the trial, not color. Many people didn't believe that. Janetta Robinson, a social worker who counseled many of the victims' families, was quoted in an AP story, calling the nearly all-white jury, quote, the final atrocity. She said, quote, the law says you should be tried by a jury of your peers. A jury of your peers. Who did this man go to bed and eat up? There should be at least half blacks and gays on that jury. The family criticized also the district attorney for treating them oftentimes more like perpetrators than victims. The trial found Dahmer legally sane, but the media frenzy made him into a monster, a crazed gay cannibal. Dale Peck writes, quote, Serial murder became a spectator sport, and gay serial killers, with their clueless wives and teenage accomplices, their necrophilia and cannibalism, 
their clown paintings and torture chambers became America's favorite gladiators, unquote. Uh, this, of course, is not possible to separate from the AIDS epidemic and its association of uh, sex with death in the minds of so many people. Uh, Richard Tithecutt writes about uh, some of these astonishing examples of this kind of homophobia in Dahmer's, um, in the media treatment of, of uh, what Dahmer did. Uh, she writes, he writes, quote, an appendix to Anne E. Schwartz's book on the Dahmer case lists his victims' criminal records along with their age and race. In the main text, she says, quote, all of Jeffrey Dahmer's victims facilitated him in some way, which is not to say that they deserve to die, but rather that their lifestyles and unnecessary risk-taking contributed to their deaths. That many of Dahmer's victims had arrest records was also a characteristic of a victim who was instrumental in his own demise. Absolutely beyond contempt, just so disgusting. Um, and she, he also writes about a Milwaukee police lieutenant named Kenneth Mueller, who wrote a master's thesis about this, about this and identified four types of Dahmer victims, innocent and non-participating victims, innocent facilitating victims, criminal facilitating victims, and criminal precipitating victims. And uh, Schwartz, uh, Anne Schwartz identifies Dahmer's victims as belonging to Mueller's third category of criminal facilitating victims because of their risk-taking risk -taking lifestyles. Quote, by inscribing his victims with incivility, Tithcott writes, by figuring Dahmer not as the white killer of black people, but as a white man tempted by and lost in a black savage world, uh, end quote, media and police help preserve their fictions about themselves and our civilization. Um, the rush to make Dahmer this abnormal exception focused on his homosexuality, and as we said, especially at this time when AIDS culturally marked gay sex with death. For white suburban heterosexual middle America, Jeffrey Dahmer, like AIDS, was the natural, even the righteous consequence of homosexual promiscuity. News reports lovingly described his tragic life and the tragic world of underground sex he inhabited. Brian Masters, that gay crime writer whose vulgar Freudianism we quoted a lot before, even speculated, and I quote, It was the homosexuality in him which led to his becoming a murderer. Had he not encouraged it, none of this might have happened. It was possible, at least, that in the depths of his being, his orientation was not homosexual at all, but that it had been diverted onto that by his extreme social awkwardness as a child. Dahmer's rejection of his homosexual dreams may have reflected a subconscious wish to rediscover his earliest self, end quote. Literally, Jeffrey Dahmer just hadn't found the right woman yet. To be fair, he was talking, oh, he did interviews with Dahmer who did have a sort of jailhouse conversion to, um, to born-again Christianity or a second born-again Christianity conversion, as we'll hear about later. And uh, so that does come from, uh, that comes from those interviews. Um, but I still think it's really an astonishing thing to even consider. And it's actually, it's in the master's book. And then I also found it again in the Tithecut book because Tithecut uses this in, as an example of how the gay stuff gets, gets constructed by these people. Um, actually the, the friend of mine, uh, who first asked me to do this episode, who's a gay man born in the late 1970s and who came of sexual age in the mid 1990s told me, and I'm quoting my friend now. If you were sexually of age when Dahmer happened, it was as much as part of your sexuality as the virus. And a friend of his who grew up near Milwaukee was told by his mother when he came out, now don't go getting yourself eaten. It was determined that Dahmer was sane, and he was convicted and sentenced to 15 consecutive life sentences and made the following statement to the court, quote, I knew I was sick or evil or both. 
Now I believe I was sick. The doctors have told me about my sickness, and now I have some peace. I know how much harm I have caused. I tried to do the best after I could after the arrest to make amends. But no matter what I did, I could not undo the terrible harm I caused. My attempt to help identify the remains was the best I could do, and that was hardly anything. I feel so bad for what I did to those poor families, and I understand their rightful hate. I know I will be in prison for the rest of my life. I know that I will have to turn to God to help me get through each day. I should have stayed with God. I tried and failed and created a Holocaust. In prison, he went through that time-old white American tradition of becoming a born-again Christian and ended up becoming actually a creationist and being baptized in the prison whirlpool. I did a lot of TV interviews afterwards about that conversion. After a July 1994 attempt to murder him by another inmate, Osvaldo Dorothy, Dahmer was murdered in the prison showers by Christopher Scarver, another fellow inmate who also murdered inmate Jesse Anderson. His mother Joyce told the press, quote, Now is everybody happy? Now that he's bludgeoned to death, is that good enough for everyone? Scarver later testified that prison staff had known that he hated Dahmer and had let him, left him alone with Dahmer to let him do it. Dahmer's brother changed his name and lives anonymously. His mother died of cancer, and his father is still alive and wrote a book. Tracy Edwards, who fought him off and helped the cops capture him, is now in jail, having, while himself experiencing homelessness, been arrested for being part of an argument in which another black homeless man fell off a bridge into the Milwaukee River. John Ballerjack, the white police officer who escorted Conorax and Thassimphone back to Jeffrey Dahmer's apartment, successfully appealed his firing three years later and became president of the Milwaukee Police Association until his retirement with full pension and benefits in 2017. Well, there's a surprise. Thanks so much to all our listeners, especially those who have shared and reviewed the show over the years. It really helps. And a special thank you to all our Patreon subscribers who really help keep the show on the road and allow us to keep making Bad Gaze. If you want to help support the show, head on over to badgazepod.com, and in return, there's a whole bunch of great rewards, including books and t-shirts. Speaking of books, uh, our book, Bad Gaze, A Homosexual History, is now available for pre-order from Verso Books and will be published in June of 2022. The book profiles 14 insidious inverts all the way from the Emperor Hadrian to the Dutch far-right politician Pim Fortown, and uh, basically presents a long extended argument for why homosexuality didn't work and what we might want to try to do instead. Um, now, every episode, we're going to uh, talk about a different little sort of did you know fact from the book. And so today's is... Did you know that Yukio Mishima's first experience of masturbation was over a 17th century Italian portrait of a martyred saint? Oh my God, the queen. For the full story... Pre-order Bad Gaze, A Homosexual History from Verso Books, available now at badgazepod.com slash book. Well, thank you, Ben. That's um, a fascinating, frustrating, and, and obviously very dark story to, to tell. And um, I thought I thought you balanced those sort of... Um, those complex issues that are sort of quite often obscured. I think I knew that in true crime, you know, I, I, I've read and seen true crime things about Jeffrey Dahmer and they do tend to linger upon the more bizarre elements of, of, uh, I guess how he, he um, disposed of the bodies. You said there was, you said there were 17 uh, and, and I, I felt, I felt like it was, yeah. What's more important, I guess, is is not to focus on those things because those things are part of the construction of these myths of monsters and this sort of strange fetish for true crime, which is sort of uh, 
interesting, but should definitely be critically interrogated as, as part of the sort of system of um, quote unquote law and order and our sort of social approach to to, to all these issues, um, sexuality, crime, race, etc. You, you said there were 17, 17 victims. Yes, um, I didn't. I did not talk about every murder there, um, everyone he murdered. But uh, let me say the names of everyone uh, of everyone that that Jeffrey Dahmer murdered. Uh, it's Stephen Mark Hicks, Stephen Walter Toomey, James Edward Doxtater, Richard Guerrero, Anthony Lee Sears, Raymond Lamont Smith, Edward Warren Smith, Ernest Marquez Miller, David Courtney Thomas, Curtis Darrell Strotter, Errol Lindsay, Tony Anthony Hughes, Conorax and Thassimphone. Matt Cleveland Turner, Jeremiah Benjamin Weinberger, Oliver Joseph Lacey, and Joseph Arthur Braidhoft. And again, 11 of those 17 were black and several others were non-black people of color. Um, another thing that I did, there, there are several uh, cases in the story, several, several figures in the story where I think the ways in which they're racialized is really important to understand how they were treated by people, how they were treated by Dahmer, how they were treated by the police. Um, the reason I didn't just give you the race of every single one of the victims is because of that quote uh, that I read about how uh, that, that crime writer, Ann Schwartz, who uh, Richard Tithcott says lists their sort of name and their age and their criminal, their name, their age, their race and their criminal record. Um, like it's just it, it, it's so because of the ways that that um, that poverty in America is racialized. Um, and because of the ways in which uh, these people being conceived of um, as uh, in the ways that they were by by uh, dominant culture, by dominant society and by dominant forms of power was so much a part of how they were able to be victimized in this way and how no one noticed that any of these people were missing uh, or people didn't notice that any of these people were missing, but no one noticed who had the, the power to, to do much about it. Um, that 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 to to it was trying to find a balance between sort of re reconstructing them that way and also talking about the obvious uh, raced or racialized aspects of what he did and of the response to it. Yeah, right. I thought that I thought that, that <clears throat> I thought that quote was very interesting. That you uh, was it a police officer who said that they couldn't find a racial component to the murders that they didn't think it was they were racist murders, but then it's like saying. That they were, they were, he that quote is only looking for the idea that you know um, Dharma was driven by some sort of animus towards people of color, of rather than saying like structurally they were racist because he killed people he knew he could get he could get away with killing precisely because he lived in a racist society that devalues right. the lives of black people and people of color. Right, and also that they were even though Dharma was a you know Dharma was a was a, the crimes were homophobic crimes uh, in that same way they weren't crimes of anti-gay animus they weren't hate crimes and that brings us back to that dale that dale peck quote uh the you know especially young gay men who who may be um thrown out of their houses uh or uh you know turned away by their families when they when they come out are, are especially vulnerable to something like this um and are especially kind of vulnerable victims yeah right and uh, it, what's interesting in these cases which is also i guess a um an antidote to this idea of uh, the true crime genre constructing this uh, image of the police as this thin blue line between between chaos and order and um, who you'd call in a in a in emergency is that quite often in these situations. I mean, I know that in the UK with serial killers who uh, preyed upon young gay men is that people in the community 
do draw attention to it, do request help from the police. Um, and the same in, in communities of color as well, that there's it, the, the, the idea that, that the police is, are people who will listen to you and respond, um, is, is racialized. Yeah. And, uh, you see it very much in this case. I mean, you, these two, you know, this the standard thing. Well, if there's no police, if someone sees something horrible happening on the street, they call the cops. What are they going to do? Well, these two young black women saw what was going on. They found this person bleeding on the street in the morning. They didn't just keep going on down the street or try to save, you know, this is someone who is actually in the process of being attacked. They put themselves in danger. Uh, they stayed mm-hmm. with him. They tried to get his story. He didn't, um, his, uh, uh, Conorak was, uh, uh, himself a Laotian immigrant. Um, I mean, he, his, uh, English, he was learning English at the time, but I mean, he had also just had his head injected with hydrochloric acid. So he was trying to communicate. Um, they stayed with him. They called the police. They called a trusted adult. They did all of that stranger danger stuff. Um, the cops came and what did the cops do? The cops threatened to arrest them and delivered yeah. Conorak back to Jeffrey Dahmer to murder um, and then made jokes about needing to de-louse themselves. Um, and then what happened to the cop who did that? Well, the cop who did that became the president of the Milwaukee Police Association. Yeah, right. Like that, that's what the police do. That is what the police do. And the true crime thing, the, there's, there's this really interesting part of, of Tithecott's book, which anyone with any interest in this topic, I really recommend they read it. I hadn't encountered it until today. And, and it's um, definitely an exciting addition to my library. Uh, but he writes about um, the ways in which the kind of monster serial killer and the genius cop are like, they, they, they get constructed as the kind of natural opposition. And they're both avatars of this kind of um, extraordinary sort of frontier masculinity. Um, yeah. And it's actually uh, that to him points to the, the, the real myth that needs to be like, like the, the myth that needs to be deconstructed. It's that kind of frontier lonesome masculinity that, that is what makes people serial killers. Like it's the, it's that taken to the extreme um, as opposed to uh, some deviation from that. Um, and the, yeah, there's a, the, the myths uh, about uh, Dahmer being a cannibal. I mean, he, he did, he admitted to eating the arm muscles of one person. Uh, but the line on Dahmer is that he was a cannibal, right? Um, oh, and, no. But he ate, I mean, he ate the arm muscles of one person, uh, but... No, I mean, he, was, he, he did, he, he was a cannibal, but a construction of him is someone who, in, in my mind, in fact, until today, I, I always assumed that the story was that he, he killed people to eat them. No, 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 no. And in fact, uh, uh, uh Tithecott makes a really convincing argument that based on the kind of racist construction of the cannibal figure in Western anthropology, ethnography, broader cultural discourse, instead of primitivist discourse, that this is a way of marking Dahmer as someone who was kind of quote unquote going native in the, like in the sort of heart of darkness, urban jungle. Uh, And that the construction of him as a cannibal reveals the degree to which we want to see him as in some fucked up way, you know, a, a savage like his victims, as opposed to understanding him as, a, in some ways, a perfect avatar of white American masculinity. Yeah, one thing I was thinking about when you were talking, actually, was um, the way that this news is often reported, uh, that crime news is constructed as, a, again, I guess, a, a trope. And it's, I was thinking, for example, in relation to um, missing white woman syndrome, 
which is this bias within news corporation news coverage to really um, emphasize and give a lot of coverage towards missing white women, um, which is, uh, I mean, missing anyone, of course, is important, but the, the, the emphasis they give is massively disproportionate to the way that they cover um, missing black women, uh, missing women of color, and, and especially indigenous women. Um, is there a relationship there between, I guess, crime news and as, as the first stage, I suppose, of the construction of true crime? That, that cr- crime news is yeah. a newspaper in, industry, which <laughs> obviously historically, you know, with Penny Dreadfuls or whatever, and um, the case of Jack the Ripper in, in the East End and stuff, there's, there's historically been like a, a very uh, uh, porous border between a concept of like crime journalism and a concept of a sort of true crime um, entertainment almost. I mean, I want to start by saying that at the beginning of this episode, I painted the entire genre of true crime with a very broad brush. Um, I was talking about what I think are the sort of predominant narratives within that genre, um, which I think are very deeply related to crime news and how crime news is generally reported. Um, There are, of course, many things that exist in the world of true crime, alongside the world of true crime, around the world of true crime, uh, that don't do the things that I was talking about, or at least don't do them in uh, the caricatured ways that that some things that some things do. And I think that there's an increasing awareness in some true crime media about some of the tropes that we're talking about here. Um, I still think that there's something very, um, to use an overused word, problematic uh, about the whole genre and the way that it is consumed uh, about the way that stories that are actually about real people become treated as though they're like a TV show or a Marvel movie or something of that nature. Like they're the, the way that people talk about people who died and the way that people talk about people who kill people and that like them. And I also think that there is a real relationship between the consumption of crime news and crime stories and also by people. I mean, True crime is not just true crime media. It's not just this sort of prestige true crime podcasts or or uh, big splashy true crime articles or books. But there's also a whole world of like Facebook groups and internet forums where people are like looking for missing people and trying to solve murders themselves. And this 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 if you ever want psychic mm. damage, there's this website called Web Sleuths where people mm. post about like different missing people or different crimes that have happened and the. You can just see the ways that the feedback loop between crime news and these people sort of on the internet talking about it and trying to solve the crimes themselves reproduces all of these ideas about the family, about where threats to children uh, and women come from, um, about race, about class, uh, all of these things that really actually end up reinforcing the structural conditions that create crime in the first place. And so you yeah. have uh, this idea being spread, I think, by people, by I, by many people who are kind of um, into true crime, uh, even maybe unknowingly, I think, are, are really reproducing the idea that the family is the safest place for the child, that the, you know, families are good places that treat people well, um, that, you know, uh, the world for women, especially white women, is this like, is a, is a place of pure danger that you should react to everyone you see with a sort of instinctive uh, fear um, and, you know, not to discount the very real risk that 
women face of violence and sexual violence in the world, which is a, a risk larger than mine as a cis man. Um, but there, there's something about the ways that these things are talked about that I think really ignores, like, who are the women who are actually the most at risk uh, of violence? Um, and the people who these websites are obsessing about tend to not be uh, the the kinds of women, the kinds of poor women, the kinds of black women, the kinds of uh, otherwise marginalized women who are actually at the most risk of something violent happening to them. It's all about the right. you know nice white girl who walks out of her condo complex and something awful happens in the parking lot, and that 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 is awful. That's that's awful. It's it's completely awful, right? It's not. This is not. This is not to say that any of this is that any of this is right, or that anything should be happening to any of these people, um, or, or, or that or that it's not news when someone is brutally murdered. Um, but uh, about whom is it news when someone is brutally murdered? And then um, you can also really see, I think, in the Dahmer case, the fact that this only becomes a big media story once Dahmer himself is actually arrested. But none of these missing people became a big media right. story. None of them. Right. Not one yeah, of yeah. them. Not one of them was some big splashy story and oh my god where is this person and we're looking for them and we're this and we're that N nothing zero zilch right um and uh you know yeah that really shows um, uh, you yeah. how these how these tropes form and then who they actually benefit i mean it is a thing um a thing in in watching true crime uh, occasionally i've watched a few series for example and there's <laughs> the the way that they 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 also um very much smooth over the police incompetence is is really striking you know that like they they try the the, the narrative of true crime is of course always to, to the sort of um in you investigate a, along with the the police and stuff and you try you're, you're trying to spot who it is as it's con as the narrative's continuing etc etc and they they have to like build so much from this flimsy thing which actually in the end it comes from the fact that this policeman just happened to see this like this tiny clue i don't know Right. And, 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 you know, the police would happen to see this tiny clue. Well, they fucking delivered a 14 year old boy yeah. back to the apartment of the guy who's going to rape and murder him. And there were fucking bodies in the apartment. The whole place smelled like rotting flesh. Yeah. And the guy was on probation for sexually abusing actually the brother of the person he was bringing back. There was no attempt to get IDs. There was no attempt to get names. If they had just run a check on Dahmer radio radioing in his name, they would have figured out this guy was on probation for sexual yeah. abuse of a minor. Like there's just this, and then the person who did that successfully appealed his firing and got promoted. Um, and this is actually, I mean, we talk about the sources at the end of the show, but this is a moment when I want to give credit to a viral Twitter thread by a, a writer and photographer named Sarah McGonigal, um, who helped bring the story of Connor Axe and Thassimphone and his family and how they were failed by the Milwaukee cops back to viral light uh, on Twitter in, in 2020. And this was in response to some tweeting by the mini, by the Milwaukee, sorry, the Milwaukee police department. Um, at the height of the wave of protests related to the police murder of George, Flo George Floyd in the summer of 2020. Um, and uh, I mean, the, 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 what happened to Connor X and Thassenphone and the, the police sort of failing to, to catch Dahmer, of course, that's a part of these more true crimey or more serial killer monster genre narratives about him. Um, but I think the, the weight of it compared to the weight of kind of uh, loving, lingering descriptions of exactly what he was doing with all of those bodies is, I think, all wrong. Um, I think that's actually much less important. Um, I wanted to talk a bit, a bit about it because I think it's, it is important to understand what happened and what he did. 
uh, when we think about the story. Uh, but I think the what's actually much more important about it is the ways that all of these victims were in every possible way systematically failed um, by systems of power that constructed them as people to whom this could happen and no one gave a fuck. Um, no one, right. not no one gave a fuck. No one who could have stopped it gave a fuck until yeah. finally one of them managed to get away. Um, and then what happens to him? He's continued to be failed by all of these systems and he ends up experiencing homelessness and he's in jail right now. And the guy who, the guy who, actually got Jeffrey Dahmer arrested by fleeing his apartment, fighting him off and, and getting out and getting the attention of the police. Um, he's in jail and the police officer who delivered a 14 year old boy back to Jeffrey Dahmer to be murdered was promoted to the yeah. president of the Milwaukee police association. I, I know I've said that several times already, but I think we really need to say it over and over and over again, because I think it's a, it's such a, that is the truth. That is true crime. You want to know what true crime is? True crime yeah. is the guy who got Jeffrey Dahmer arrested is in jail, and the police officer who delivered one of his victims back to him is the president. What became the president of the Milwaukee Police Association? That's true crime. Well, on that note, for people who'd like to uh, research more of the story and um, perhaps take a, a, a deeper look than the the sort of uh, true crime genre. What were some of the sources used for this episode? Well, let's start with the true crime genre. Um, there is the Brian Masters book, The Shrine of Jeffrey Dahmer, uh, and a book by Donald A. Davis called The Jeffrey Dahmer Story. Um, the book that I was quoting uh, that was sort of about the construction of Jeffrey Dahmer as serial killer monster, which I really like, is called Of Men and Monsters, Jeffrey Dahmer and the Construction of the Serial Killer by Richard Tithecott. Um <coughs> There is also uh, that uh, wonderful Dale Peck memoir uh, called Visions Revisions um, about a group life uh, in the AIDS uh, epidemic um, that, that I mentioned. Uh, there's a whole collection of news articles, most of which I'm, I'm not going to name here, uh, but which are all linked in the show notes as always. Um, I, I also want, I, mean, I already shouted it out, that, that Twitter thread by Sarah McGonigal, I think did a lot of work to get that part of the story back into kind of public circulation. Um, and then there's a really interesting article about true crime uh, by Gabriella Gage, I quoted from at the beginning, called True Crimes, Deceits, the Genrefication of Tragedy. And that was last year in the LA Review of Books. Um, and in a more differentiated and longer way than I did, I mean, that was really the, the focus of her of her uh, essay was, was about her reaction to the increasingly popular category of true crime uh, as the friend of, of someone who was murdered. Um, and what what that was like to sort of experience and go through, and I think it's a really wonderful essay, and she's a really wonderful writer. So I I would I would recommend that people check that out, and that's also linked in the show notes. Well, thanks so much, Ben. Uh, that's the end of our series slash season. We will hopefully be back, I guess, in a few months. Um, yeah. In the um, meantime, um, we have a book coming out, which um, you can find on our website www.badgayspod com, which might help tide you over. That'll come out in um, the very end of May, start of June. Uh, and we'll also be doing um, quite a few live events in promoting that book um, across the UK. And I think, Ben, you're going over to the US and you'll be doing a few in the States as well. US. Yeah, we're doing, um, we're releasing details um, as they come out. 
Uh, right now, uh, all we can say publicly is that we have events in Edinburgh and Rotterdam, but there are many more than that that we already know about that aren't, we're not ready to release yet. But all of those are going on our website at badgazepod.com slash book. And so keep attuned to that and to our social media because we will be letting you know where we are and you can come uh, see us in our personal flesh. Um, and we're also... We've also got a lot of really exciting people lined up to help make that tour uh, as much as possible a real conversation, uh, to keep the conversations fresh, uh, to keep the nights different from one another. And so uh, they should be really fun events, and I'm really looking forward to it. So, Yeah, and we'll, we'll stick that up on our Twitter, which is um, at BadGazePod, and we'll also put details of that on our Instagram, which is also at BadGazePod, so you can find, find follow us there and keep keep abreast of what's happening uh, if you want to follow me i'm on twitter at hugh lemmy and i've got a weekly newsletter or <laughs> every couple of weeks newsletter hugh.substack.com um and i'm gonna follow that up by plugging hugh's newsletter again because it's very good and you should all pay to subscribe to it hugh.substack.com uh, and i'm on twitter <laughs> at uh, ben writes things and uh thank you so much for listening to our season thank you much for your support and uh you'll hear from us again very soon bye Bye. Bad. 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 Bad.